0: 4 Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and jazz keep it four degrees to the streets.
1: hi everyone welcome back to the four degrees to the streets podcast nemo and i jasmine are so excited to be here for season four we are doing a special off season early start to the season episode with a special guest veronica davis and veronica do you have anything to say to our guests as we welcome you to the show
2: I am excited to be here, uh, two fabulous hosts, and I'm excited about this conversation.
1: Nemo, how are you doing? How are things going? How was the summer? We've been busy. We've been active. What's going on?
0: We have. I feel like this is the summer that everyone's trying to reclaim normalcy, but everyone's like overdoing, overplanning, overcommitting. I am one of those people. So I was like, July, I'm going to sit down. That didn't happen. Travel twice. Traveling in August, traveling in September, so just on the go. but I always enjoy when we can come together and do our podcast
1: things. But how are you doing? We are also overpaying for a lot of things. Everybody that's on con on tour is like, "Are your tickets normally this high? This seems outrageous. And I did. I saw a stat that said, like during the pandemic, people's credit scores rose. But now, like they're balances are rising and I'm like yeah everything costs at least twice as much and all the restaurants are automatically charging you 15% without being the tip it's just an extra little service charge what's going on so Nemo I will give the mic to you and let you introduce our guest
0: yes that was who that was heavy our first episode last season was about um the future of work but we I think no we also had an episode about cost of living we didn't even know what we would be in now (laughs) The predicament that we're in now is, is, yeah, I think about it a lot and talk about it often. Um, But yes, um, I am so excited, um, as Jasmine mentioned, to have Veronica on the the podcast today. I'm going to do a little rewind to 2018 um, when I met Veronica through the National Complete Streets Coalition when I was working there at the time, um, and we were doing our intro intersections conference and uh, Veronica delivered an amazing keynote um, keynote uh, presentation and one of the main takeaways was you can't retrofit equity Um, and so I'm so thankful and grateful that um, five five years later we can now um, join today to talk about her recent book release Um, inclusive transportation, a manifesto for repairing divided communities. Um, and I won't, well, the the whole episode is a spoiler, I guess, but I still recommend everyone, um, go pick up a copy today. Um, and, the, you know, even at that time, Complete Streets was doing an overhaul of their policies to include um, equity And um, as Veronica mentions in her book, it was around that time 2017 between 2017 2019 that that was equity was finding its way into the planning, um, into the planning space so I'm excited for this conversation today, um, before we get started. I'll just share a bit about Veronica. Veronica O'Davis is a professional engineer and is currently the director of transportation and drainage operations for Houston Public Works. Veronica has nearly 20 years of experience in engineering and transportation planning. She co-founded Black Woman Bike and was recognized as a champion of change by the White House in 2012 for her professional accomplishments and advocacy. Veronica serves on the committees for the Transportation Research Board the board for America Walks, as well as the technical advisory boards at the University of Maryland and Cornell University. Today, Veronica is representing herself, although she works for the city of Houston. Um, You can find the book online at islandpress.org and also follow Veronica on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Veronica O. Davis. So Veronica, it has been almost a month since Inclusive Transportation was released. Um, Please take us on a journey. Um, on what it was like to write the book, and what was your inspiration?
2: Well, um, you know, like every journey, uh, nothing ever really goes as planned. You know, it's like the road trip, and you have your map of how you're going to get there, and things happen along the way. Um, so in 2018, it seems to be the year, Nemo, uh, but in 2018, I spoke at a conference in Philadelphia in October, and I was talking about justice in public spaces, and um, and that's when this woman walks up to me, Courtney Link, and is like, have you ever thought about writing a book? And she ended up being my first editor at Island Press. Um, but it took a time. You know, it wasn't just like you dive in and you start writing a book. It took about two years for us to, going back and forth and her kind of pulling things out of me to get to a framework for what the book was going to look like. The The very much a kind of annotated outline, if you will of what we were going to talk about. And that was an evolution. I went through six different versions of an outline uh, where uh, recently, you know, just, you know, as you give birth, you know, to this this book, it, you know, going back and looking at the beginning and I looked at the first outline and what I submitted at first and the book, it, it doesn't even mirror. Um, but part of that was just kind of getting an outline of what I wanted um, the reader to walk away with, how I wanted it to be formatted, Uh, and all those things. And who was my primary audience? Who who was my secondary audience? So it's really taking the time uh, to do that level of work. And then it's just writing. It's just trying to get the words out. I think that sometimes we try to wordsmith as you're getting the words out. And and there were times when I had to go back and listen to old um, keynotes and old um, workshops that I got. And I'm like, all right, well, let me just start by transcribing what I already said. And then it gets you in a zone and then you can start writing. Uh, I use a lot of voice notes where I'd be in the car by myself or I'd be walking by myself and I had these thoughts. So I would voice note it and then later go and transcribe and it would help me write. I I went to writing workshops and writing prompts. Um, So interestingly enough, my preface, um, to be completely honest, uh, actually came out of a writing workshop that I did. Um, And so all of those elements played in themselves. And then read um, read other books of like the writing process. So it was definitely a journey. And I think um, what made it challenging is uh, I interrogated myself in a lot of ways of not just my journey, but how I think the things that I've experienced. So those parts of it are deeply personal and you're just the balance of what do I want to put in? What do I don't want to put in? What do I need to say? Um, and not been, And be fearless and step up and say, what do I need to protect a little bit? Um, and so just going through that process, particularly with my editor and, and getting to, you know, eventually a, a final product, um, and then working with the next group of editing teams. So it was definitely a journey. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of whining, um, mostly me. Um, but you know, we, we I did get it done. Um, and then just what was my inspiration? Um, you know, there's a book, uh, think and grow rich by Napoleon Hill. Uh, and if you don't have it, your readers should get it. Um, and it's not necessarily about, you know, I want to be a billionaire, um, but you know, it's about how do I how do I set a purpose and then get moved to that purpose? And so it's a really great book um, that you can read from beginning to end, but it's also that book you can go back to a chapter, and then there's activities of like, here's this big discussion. And then now I want you to take time to reflect. And so that's what I did for my book and why it's formatted the way it is, is every chapter is here's my thoughts now. I want you to take the time and reflect and pause and write down what you think. In some cases, I invite the readers to write down their thoughts before they hear what I have to say and then evaluate how it changes. And I did that because I wanted it, Think and Grow Rich lives in my nightstand, Um, but I wanted this to be a book that, you know, just read and pat yourself on the back. And I did the equity and uh, you feel great about yourself. I really wanted it to be that book that stays on your desk, that as you do different tasks, you're like, oh my gosh, let's go back to chapter four or let's go back to chapter three. Um, and so that was really, uh, kudos to Napoleon Hill. I hope he was a good person, but kudos to Napoleon Hill for for giving me that idea for a format of the book.
0: Yeah, I know I um, I enjoyed the reflection pieces where I had to um write my own thoughts out before um before reading your thoughts because a lot of times when i'm doing facilitation i love a think pair share um i'm definitely a more like cerebral person I get distracted when I hear other people's thoughts and I go all over the place. So I definitely appreciated that on a personal level. Um and I know you said you know, picking up inspiration from Napoleon Hill's book and having reflection pieces, how do you feel like the release or the process of writing the book has impacted your day-to-day work?
2: You know, um, every day it's, you know, it's an accusation of myself. Uh, and I know that uh, I observe on, you know, Twitter people, you know, subtweeting me. I don't know if you can sub me now. I don't know how that works, um, but you know, people, you know, talking about me a like, well, the, the author said, and I know they're talking about me. Um, and I talk about that in the preface and I'm very honest of, I do know that I'm held accountable to my words. And so even for me having to go back and read my own book, in some cases I'm like, yes, yes. Talk to me, sis, this is what I needed. <laughs> and then in some cases it's the reminder of what we're doing and and why we do what we do. And so having to take a pause, And, and think even as I'm making decisions of, you know, especially chapter four, which was my favorite to write, but especially chapter four of evaluating different stakeholders about different things and who is always harmed, you know, as everyone's debating and people are for people are against who's harmed and who's not listened to. Um, So it's really changed me and I hope it's made me a better practitioner. And especially as someone who now is in a decision-making role and has influence over the big decision maker, you know, taking that role seriously, uh, being fearless. And, you know, one of the things I told my staff, they, you know, they were asking me one time about, you know, leadership. And I said, you know, I I recognize every day that I serve at the pleasure of the administration. And at any point I could be thanked for my service, but I can't lead from a place of fear because if I lead from a place of, if I do this, I might get fired. Um, I can't push or I can't get the best outcomes. And you become a yes person um, because you just want to be agreeable. But being able to uh, respectfully disagree or present another idea um, and, and and help uh, you know other decision makers to see why this is good or bad and, and having those dialogues or saying why well, this is what we really need to do. Um, it's really important. And I think that, and I hope, that is, people read it and they become future directors of transportation, directors of transit agencies. That this, the, the book gives them a little bit of fearlessness um, because you really can't, if you can't lead from a place of comfort.
1: I think that's really empowering. I really enjoyed your book because of the personal notes that you talked about. I really like seeing and not to spoil it, but I really like seeing the pictures of your great grandmother's house and like where it was and how close it is or was to the highway. And I thought that was important to share because the way in which planning decisions and policy decisions are kind of talked about in planning school or kind of like abstract because many of the professors or the students in the classroom don't necessarily live in the day-to-day with the negative consequences of those policy decisions but I appreciated your book because it always brings us back to there's people living today who were impacted by that and that was always very I think that was very empowering and I appreciate you for including that in the book because I want to ask you made a decision not to kind of talk through the kind of history of racism and planning and the history of all those different things and planning and kind of focus on where we are today can you talk us through why you felt that was an important distinction to make in your book
2: for me it was you gotta do some work you know, uh, do some homework. you know this isn't the remedial class. this is the you know when you when you were in school, and it's like, oh, to take this class, you had to have the one hundred and the two hundred. That's what this is. this is the advanced class, and you know part of it was um just the amount of research that goes into it, especially now, where everyone wants to deny and facts and alternative facts, and well, that didn't really happen. um, I just didn't really and I felt like there's enough of a body of work out there um. That I didn't feel the need to regurgitate that, um, but starting from a place of, you know, hey, I'm going to summarize all these things that happened, and if you don't believe it, then you need to go and do some work and Google, and maybe you need to start there. Um, this this book is for people who've at least done a little bit of work and have a little bit of understanding, and so and that was that was really just a choice because I wanted to focus on um, the practical side of it and not get caught in a history lesson.
1: I think that was a really smart thing to do because of what you mentioned, like people begin to debate whether the facts are facts or what happened and what didn't happen and it detracts or distracts from, well, this is where we are today and these are the problems that exist today. And Here are some of the solutions or ways we can work to make society more inclusive and more equitable. So I think that was great. Uh, Our next question centers around policymakers and planners. And so within the book, you discuss the ways that planners and policymakers use data to arrive at solutions. You highlight that technology will not save us. And kind of the premise that just because we have new tools, we have GIS, we have chat, GBT, all these systems, it doesn't make it easier for us to solve problems. I want to ask, what advice do you have for analysts or data scientists that are a little lower in the totem pole in terms of decision making? to influence how the data is used to make decisions. So someone in a planner one position who's just running through the data or someone that's in a consulting firm that's in that uh, analyst position that's working through the data and presenting it to a decision maker, what advice do you have for them to influence how decisions are being made?
2: So this is where I think that for data analysts, it's important um, and I think even with the book, um, particularly with chapter one, that's why I invite people to evaluate themselves first uh, because data is only good as what you, data only can do what you tell it to do. Um, and it's more than just the analysis, it is what is the question that you are trying to answer. And so I think for entry level people um, who are the number crunchers, it is to understand what is the question that you're asking and are you asking the right question. Number one, and then two, what is beyond the data? Because um, I think sometimes uh, what tends to happen is we look at things spatially, and we say spatially there's an inequity, right? But we don't think about, and, I, and I'll give a great example. I'll pick on I'll pick on DC just because I can. And I wrote about this. So I'm not saying anything I hadn't written about. This is not in the book, but things that I wrote about in a blog post uh, for Greater, Greater Washington, which is a regional blog post. I'm very much local to the DC region. Um, So a lot of my old stuff is still on there if you Google Greater, Greater Washington, Veronica O'Davis. But um, when Capital Bike Share was first introduced in DC, they threw a couple in the Black neighborhoods and they're like, equity. Um, And they looked at the data and all this other stuff. But if you look at things in 2D, it's like, wow, why are these people on this side of town not using it? And it's because, yes, we looked at activity centers, right? Those are things that uh, planners are trained to do. We look at the activity centers. We look at the bus routes. We look if there's bike you know, bike lanes. So that's a very 2D thing. But no one looked at t- topography. So yeah, you put a bike share, but it's at the top of the hill. Who's about to bike up to that hill? And these bikes are heavy. So that's where it is, you know, pushing yourself beyond the 2D, um, and then making sure you're really asking the right questions. And then what's really important is using the community as a data source. It's qualitative data, but it is data. And oftentimes, the community can give you information that you don't have. A great example is, many of us has looked at, you know, an aerial photo, and you see, you know, a park. And then you see this just trail of dirt, right? And so what is it? That is the community telling you that they wanna walk that path. You are forcing them a different way, but that is not the way they wanna walk. And so there's all different things. They call them pig trails, goat trails, um, desire lines, use whatever term you want. But at the end of the day, that's a data source, Um, but you can miss it if you're focused on the other pieces of the infrastructure.
1: I think that's an important note. I remember where Nemo and I met in school, being the data analyst on a lot of transportation projects, a lot of the data we look for is whatever is available. Whatever you can get your hands on, that's what you use to make your decisions. And that is a limiting factor because some things just like that are not measurable. They don't have those just, there's not a shapefile for desire trails that exist that you can plug into your map and tell you where things can happen. And so that's really important to think through.
0: Yeah, I always think about how in planning school, um, and I took a lot of geography classes in undergrad, and I would just sit there and my eyes were kind of glazed. And I'm like, I wonder if people know that we spend so much time making conclusions about census tracts, and we never actually talk to the people in the census tracts, because those people don't even know that there's like this, they may not know that there's a, this group of people, whether it be planners, um, you know, those who are doing spatial analysis, making decisions based on a survey every 10 years that has its own flaws. And we're drawing all these conclusions, never even considering what they what they actually want or what they need.
2: Absolutely. I remember I worked on a project, um, a Safe Routes to School. And I know many of you've heard of that. And it's a very formalized process. Um, and a lot of it is about data gathering. And I think it's an, a really great framework. So if those of you aren't familiar, I really encourage you to look at their framework because it is a framework of, we look at things spatially based on best available data. Many of us have used that line, Um, but also it's about observation. And so you actually spend the time observing um, kids coming to school and observing them leaving school, because otherwise you can look at origin and destination. right? You can say all the kids going to this school are coming from this zip code or this location, or you can take a survey, but until you actually see it with your own eyes. And I bring up this example because um, I it, it was a safe route to school in my old neighborhood. And so I was sitting there doing the observation. And so of course the data, the, the observations match the data, how the kids were getting to school. So some were getting to school by a bus and crossing the street. Some were walking and crossing the street. But what we wouldn't have known without the observation is the sheer amount of kids being brought to school by a male figure, either a dad or a granddad, an uncle, or even an older brother or older or older sibling, even when for siblings, it, gender was a little bit more neutral, but you know, an older sibling of some sort. But on the adult side, it was mostly men bringing these kids to school. So one, it is, okay, people are being, being brought to school by their dad, But then the other piece was kids being brought to school by an older sibling who drops off the younger sibling and then goes to their school. And so it's a realization of not just, we don't need just a safe route to school, we need a safe route between schools. And we wouldn't have known that data piece without the observation. And so um, observation is very important, even for people in the data analyst space, you have to still go out and look at the thing. And I know it's hard, especially, you know, with remote work and people might be working on a project a few states away, but at some point you actually need to get on, you need eyes on the ground to see the field to experience, um, because a lot can miss
1: without that. I think that was something that I really appreciated in your book was a concept of bringing that community outreach person into the technical analysis or decision-making room, because Nemo and I have both been in the street, collecting bike and pedestrian data and all these different things um, and how that information was used, information that we gained by being visible in the site and talking to people on the site didn't always translate into the plans that we were working on. And so I thought that was something that was really important. I wonder if it's really just a matter of an allocation of resources and making sure that there's enough money in the budget to make sure that that person who's doing the community outreach can be brought into the technical process, or is there a bigger issue that I'm missing? Whew. um, So
2: you know, I talk about this a little bit in my book, uh, uh, Chapter Five of What Goes On. Um, and so it is a variety of things. In some cases, um, the project team already knows what it wants, and so you come up with a process to get people there, or you avoid a process altogether. Um, but honestly, I think a lot of it comes down to people just aren't trained for this. Um, I have four years of undergrad as an engineer, one year as a grad engineer. I never once had a single learned about a community meeting at all during that time. Um, even as a planner, you learn about kind of community development, but even then no one ever tells you how do I structure a meeting to get the information that I need. Because I think you learn how to do a feel good engagement but you don't, how do I then take that and put it, use it as data? And no one is trained on it. Uh, Maybe now, because I've been out of school for a minute, but we won't talk about that. But, you know, it's just no one's trained on it. So I think sometimes it's just people really don't know. And what I do know is, hey, we had a community meeting, we got some feedback. Um, And part of it comes down to, are you asking the right question? To, are you being honest with the community? I think sometimes, you know, the tell me all your problems, tell me what you need. It doesn't work, you know their problems, right? And you might wanna get their ideas, but you need to say what the box is. Hey, here is the box that we need to exist in, you know? And this is why, you know, the funding is $10 million. That's all we have is $10 million. You know, but whatever the constraints are, you have to give people the constraints up front and then, you know, design your public engagement process from there. Um, And therefore, then you can use the community as true data points. But I think, honestly, just a lot of it comes down to where just people aren't trained to do it. It really needs to get in the curriculum. And I know I mentioned in my bio, I sit on advisory board uh, for both Cornell University uh, for civil engineering, and then also for University of Maryland for the planning program. But that's a lot of what I talk about. It's You need people, I think sometimes we can get so focused on really technically great people and they have a 4.0. I actually don't really want the 4.0 student. I need someone who can talk to people. And usually that relatable person is probably that B student because they were out hanging out, you know, while studying, but they were hanging out. And so, you know, having that person that knows how to relate to different type of people is just, it's, it's, it's something that you really can't teach in that way. And so I think that's really what it boils down to. Yeah,
0: I think the the history of lack, the lack of the community engagement training and curriculum, I think about the professionals who often lead the studio courses, the hands-on courses in grad school. Um, And even if a project most of the time has a client where there may need to be some level of community engagement, it's like the person leading that course may not be trained. And then the people taking the class may have to do a community engagement piece, but it almost feels like just, we're, we're all walking, we could all potentially be walking in the dark and we walk away with a finished product for a client, but did we actually do any sort of inclusive or thoughtful or meaningful engagement? Um, and I, you know, I think about the silent, silent suffering, those who are silently suffering, um, that you refer to in the book. Um, and, um, part of me wants to associate it with those who are, um, historically underrepresented and, uh, historically disproportionately harmed by transportation decisions, Um, and whether that be people that are low income, um, disabled people, black and brown people, how can they utilize the political process um, and, you know, for example, connecting with elected officials um, to get their needs met in their community?
2: You know, I'll say, I think for anyone, it all comes down to organizing and citizen advocacy. Um, I uh, will say in a city that uh, I have worked in, um, there is a group that, um, you know, it is made up of very different people. There's older people. um, There are people who are visually impaired, who are hearing impaired, um, and they've come together. And in a very focused way, they've been able to move um, different policies and move the politicians. So it's still, to me, the same tactic. Um, and part of it is showing up, and I know that's hard um, for, you know, just because life life is lifing. You know, we were talking about vacation, you know, before we started recording and everything, and even when we were recording, but life is lifing. And, and I understand it's hard, but it really is about uh, showing up and still doing the same level of advocacy. Um, and, you know, it is holding leaders accountable, um, both elected leaders and appointed leaders and holding them accountable, uh, for different things. But, you know, that's really what it comes down to. And it's in the squeaky wheel. Yes. Gets the, gets the oil, but it's also about, um, being the people that can come together, um, and create the vision and be able to share that vision and making sure it is heard.
0: Yeah. I think that reminds me a lot about our, um, how to make community engagement work for you episode in, In season two. And I think that was one of our main takeaways for listeners that even if you're in your neighborhood and you pull one or two other people in to send that email um, to that council member or to, you know, take turns going to a meeting or showing up, but even just emailing the same person repeatedly or however much um, I've seen that also be effective. Um, and then you kind, you kind of become, you have power in that sense where you're able to influence a decision, um, because, you know, you, you know, thinking about elected officials, they want to get reelected and ha- knowing that their constituents are unhappy, ooh, is so much, there's so much power in that.
2: <laughs> so I must say this now, um, Having been on the other side, and I'm not going to talk about the city of Houston, um, but I have worked as a, you know, a planner for a local government before. I will say everything is about balance, um, because I think that some people have read my words and they're like, great, now I'm going to start harassing government people until they give me what I want. Like, that's not it. Um, you know, part of it, it, too, it, everything in life, it comes down to relationships. Um, it is always about a give and take. Um, and, it, and it comes down to how am I a trusted advisor to my elected official? And I think sometimes with some advocacy groups, when you come at people and you're yelling and you're accusatory and you're inflammatory, um, you might get the attention. Um, but you, the opposite can also happen where then you get sent right to this other, you know, email inbox. And when I worked in, um, you know, when I worked for this other local government, not the city of uh, Houston, but I worked for another local government, you know, we had the list of, you know, we had our cast of citizens that always sent us nasty grams and and honestly gets to a point where I heard you and I'm going to put you in this folder. Um, So I think it is about balance. It's really about building relationships uh, with the elected officials and appointed officials and being trusted in that relationship. Um, because when you lie on an elected official or or whatever, again, it those things begin to break down and erode trust. So it really is about doing the work. And even in chapter six, I talk about making sure you're electing the right people to begin with, because that's half the battle. Um, and those are things that I think that you know particularly planners and engineers, like we forget about, um, we think, you know we don't have to, but I've seen groups um, you know come together and put together their questionnaire and send it to candidates and say, I want you to answer my questionnaire. I want to know where you stand on equity. I want to know where you stand on um, investment in public transit. I want to know where you stand on trees. I want to know where you stand on these issues if you want my vote. Um, and so I think that there w- th- are way, ways things that can be done. And I talked about Greater Greater Washington as an example. Of uh, Greater Greater Washington literally started as just a bunch of urban people interested in urban studies, urban planning, who lived in the DC region, and we all took turns writing blog posts, which then turns into, oh, let's write about elections, which then turned into, oh, well, here's our election questionnaire, which then turned into endorsements. Um, So all of those things, um, you know, get you a seat at the table when you feel like a trusted resource. And, And even in my activist and advocacy days, you know, I always got a seat, but, and I agitated when I needed to, but I got there because um, I became that trusted advisor.
1: I appreciate you sharing that color um, just because I think a lot of people miss the way in which planning, transportation planning, and all of the different aspects of it are impacted by policy decisions and politics because the money is ultimately coming from some government entity if it's not being raised in other ways. And so there's some level of politics around the decisions and where to make investments, where to make changes and all of that. And so being, I'd say, a savvy member of society and is very important into making sure that your neighborhood is serviced the way that you need it to be serviced.
2: It is building up your political savviness um, as you are an advocate. And again, you need your agitators. You need your flamethrowers. God bless them. You need them. Um, But you also need your people who know how to navigate spaces um, in a way that is trustful, and that's how, you know, you build your power and your influence.
0: I will just add to it, it makes me think about the, um, when, how, uh, the examples you gave of when government is afraid of the public, or afraid of doing those public meetings, because there's a history of, um, of hurt and distrust from previous decisions that were, that were unmet, um, but I, I I really like that term trusted advisor I think if they if advocates are viewed in like okay they have issues they're mad they're upset about these things but how can I bring them in and build that relationship then that I can see that also eliminating some of the fears for for future meetings and engagement
1: a common theme throughout the book is the dispute over how to best allocate a finite number of resources across communities are there any cities or programs that are kind of best practices or success stories for applying equity into their budget decisions or even in their capital programs decisions? Ooh, um, I can't think of any specifically, but I do
2: know that there are some, um, and there are even just different examples. Like I know um, Philadelphia's bike share bike share program is a really great example of a kind of co planning, if you will, with the community and including the allocation of resources. Um, Because I know that Philly, before they even designed their bike share, they did the benchmarking of other cities, but they also held a lot of focus groups with different people in the community. And so people had a chance to weigh in on the color of the bikes. Um, And people had a chance to weigh in on the method of payment and um, the distribution. And so I know it's not quite financial per se, Uh, but it is an example. Um, I know that there, I can't remember the city offhand, but I know that there are some cities that have uh, taken to a more, uh, you know, kind of holistic approach to the budget decisions. But, you know, a lot of it really comes down to um, the leader and the priorities of that particular community. You know, I will say that, um, you know, I reference in the book Montgomery County Maryland, and so that's where, as part of their Vision Zero program, working to develop a equity framework uh, for Vision Zero, and that's how we came up with uh, kind of abandoning the kids trying, everybody trying to see a baseball game to um, you know kind of an ER model of let's deal with the most critical first, and then we're going to get to you. Um, And so I know that as part of the next round of budgets for Vision Zero, they did use that framework. Um, I don't know. I have not I have not followed up to see kind of the success of that. Um, but I will say that, you know, even in the work that we are, and what I can't share about Houston, even the work that we're doing, um, you know, the mayor here has his complete communities program and he identified 10 communities of highest need in the city. And so there is an action plan for each community um, that is all community driven. So zero of 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 staff was involved. In that, and so the community got to say, "This is what we need." And so then those action plans were given to staff to say, "All right, make it make it work." You know, like Tim Gum used to say, "Make it work, people, make it work." Um, and so I think it is a very interesting model, and um, kind of the fruits of that are the investments that have been made, and the fact that um, the city of Houston has been able to get uh, bipartisan infrastructure law money in the complete communities but for the work that was already done in those communities. Um, and I think overall, even to talk about the bipartisan infrastructure law, really kudos to um, Congress and the Biden administration kudos to the people in Congress who voted for it um, and the Biden administration for assigning it um, because um, there is a lot of language in there that talks about areas of persistent poverty. And so to see the billions and billions of federal investment be able to go to the areas of persistent poverty. That right there is an example of allocation of resources into communities that need it. Now, we're probably a couple years off um, from being able to uh, see the benefits of that. But even just the fact that that has happened, even in rural areas, because you know rural America loves to be like, we're a rural America and you have persistent poverty out there too. Uh, so really being able to see that investment, really seeing equity um, lifted under that leadership, um, I'm really excited to see, you know, five to seven years from now when those projects are in the ground, um, the success stories.
0: Yeah, I know last, um, it, it's like even at the time that's passed since the bipartisan infrastructure law um, was passed. I do think in some, in a lot of cases, it is too early to tell, but I think at least um, what I've seen. From the White House, in terms of the documentation and the transparency, and how projects are being selected, um, and the thoughtfulness that has gone into the structuring of the programs, um, has been has been refreshing. Um, so, um, t- kind of taking a turn, going back to the more personal elements of the book. I know Jasmine and I. Um, we don't shy away from the fact that we're Black women in these spaces and often in spaces with people who don't look like us. And that was one of the core reasons um, for starting the podcast. Um, and I think even having this platform to voice our thoughts in an honest way, um, personally, I think has helped me deal with a lot of, um, has helped me deal with um, bouts of imposter syndrome Um And uh, you mentioned the article, The White Problem in Planning, um, that you co-authored. And it mentioned um, the lack of representation in the field. So if a Black woman, and I'm using that as an example, as a Black woman, because I'm asking this question selfishly (laughs) um, from you, Veronica, who I um, completely look up to and admire all the work that you've done. So as a Black woman in this planning space, if you find yourself Trying to build a bridge by choice, because you care, because you're passionate, because you feel called to do it, um, what advice do you have for them to navigate those spaces or to avoid burnout?
2: Ooh, um all right, So let me start with the burnout first, then I'll do the other part. You know, I think that um, at times, you know someone says life is a marathon. I don't really think life is a marathon. Life is more of a hit workout where you have periods of sprint. And then you hopefully take your periods of rest and so I I definitely think for as a black woman in this space take your rest um as you know mentioned I just came off of a vacation but really take your rest and truly disconnect um and the other part of that now this is my little free thing you can make a link for your listeners you need to download these two songs these are my two go-to songs for everything so one is uh trigger protection by Janae Iko. I hope I'm saying her name right and the other one is called Lullaby by Tasha. And you need to have those on your phone. If you've never heard them, listen to them tonight. And so what I really love about Lullaby by Tasha, it is, a, it is the Black girl's lullaby. And so what she talks about is, um, you know, take, it's okay to take a rest. And so there's a line and she's like, it's okay. You can keep your magic to yourself. You can keep it locked away. They'll have to find a new wonder for today. You don't always have to be the one to save the world. And it's like, you know, black girl just rests. And so I say that particularly for black women, of uh, it is um, you know, it, the you know, the body keeps score, and unfortunately, in our DNA is encoded to um, nurture, is encoded to save communities. Um I think that, you know, when you look at our grandmamas, our mamas, you know, we were holding it down. They were working. They was going to church, working in the church, and they was feeding the family, getting the family to school, making sure, you know, and just the 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 amount of of black women who we were super women, right? And we can sometimes idolize that, but we also forget Grandmama was tired, you know. And you think about the the tiredness that they must have felt, but they kept going for us. Um, and I think that you know, for us, there is a piece of uh, that we can learn from that of, yes, we know we can do it. And I'm gonna call on my ancestors to get through it. But the the curse, in a sense, that we need to break is, but it's okay to sit down and rest. Um, so that's my burnout. Okay, now what's the other part? Uh, the advice about building a bridge. <laughs> uh, so I'll say this, I think for, particularly for Black women, Um, I almost going to say, you need to know who you are, um, in any, and, and it's really anybody, but, and, and why I structured the book to start off with the self, you need to know who you are. You need to know what your values are. You need to know what your boundaries are, um, and just be very secure in that because the world will try to shape you and you can shape and try to mold yourself to fit in. Um, and I had a realization, so I, um, I don't wear, I very rarely wear suits. It is very rare you will see me in a suit. And if you see me in a suit, it's a mismatched suit. Like, so it's very rare you will see me in a matching suit. And I realized one day, um, and, I, oh, and then all my suits are colorful, like raspberry and all the other things, the suits that I have. Um, and I went to that because, you know, the model of our parents is, no, you wear your Navy suit and you wear your pantyhose and you slip and you go and do these things. And um, I was at a conference and it was a whole bunch of suits. And I realized it, it I'm never going to fit in with these people. It is a bunch of men. No matter how much I contort and move, I am never going to fit in. I'm always going to be one of these doesn't look like the other. And once I did that, I embraced, I'm going to wear what, I, what makes me comfortable. And if what makes me comfortable happens to be, you know, my African print pants and a top, then that's what I'm going to wear. If it happens to be my raspberry soup, that's what I'm going to wear. If it happens to be my yellow dress, guess what? I'm going to wear that too. And it's a, you know, why, why try to fit in when you stand out, stand all the way out. Um, and so I think that it's a, a freedom in that. And when I got to that point of my career, I was like, you know what? I'm never going to be you. So let me just be me and let me be the best version of me that I can be. Um, in terms of the bridge, you know, I think that Um, you know, I, I definitely believe in prayer, (laughs) uh, for wisdom and discernment. I definitely believe in talking to my ancestors, um, for guidance on things, because I think that what you will find in this work is understanding when you need to be a bridge and understanding when you don't need to give up your political capital with the community for someone else's project. And it's hard, um, you know, because there are going to be times that you're like, nope, I'm not going to be your bridge. I'm not going to be your culvert. I'm not even going to be your vine to swing across. Um, and it's okay to say that it's okay to say, I'm not, I'm not going to give up my political capital on this project. Cause I don't think it's a good project. Um, I think this project harms. And so, um, you know, really staying mindful of that. Um, and then mindful when you do need to build the bridge mindful when um, you do need to kind of get sister girl with people. I'll never forget. I talk about it in the book. I was at a, um, one of my projects is people were angry, bike lane, ah, never going to bike. And so I pulled these two older women aside. I was like, okay, sis, what's wrong? Like, just talk to me. I covered up my badge. Let's just, can we have just a sister girl talk? What is going on? What are you upset about? Like, tell me what you're upset. Cause I don't want, I can't do anything with that. What are you specifically upset about? And they were like, well, I don't bike. Okay. Why don't you bike?" Well, cause uh, I haven't biked in a while. Okay. So you just rusty. You just need someone to help you navigate biking. They're like, yeah. And, you know, I don't feel safe biking. Oh, well, what would make you feel safe biking? Well, you know, if they had them bike lanes, like they got up, you know, on the other side of town where there's the protection maybe. Okay. Well, that's what this project is. And then they were like, hey, she got me. Um, But even, you know, as the co-founder of Black Women Bike, what we found is, you know, at the time that we co-founded, I was in my thirties, I was younger. Um, but I was actually one of the youngest members. A lot of the members of Black Women Bike, even to this day, are young young retirees, women in their 50s and 60s who want to be active, who works. We got them back on a bicycle. Um, there was one woman that uh, we got her on the bike for the first time in 50 years. And then now she's biking to commuting, not all the time, but biking to the grocery store, uh, biking to go see her friends where she has a reliable um, and affordable source of income. And so sometimes it's bringing who you are, and that goes really for anyone, bring who you are to the conversation and use it as a method to connect to people. Because if you don't know who you, if you don't know yourself, how do you know others? And that's where I even talk, I know I'm I'm off topic for the question, but I'm gonna just keep going. Um, Because even in chapter six, you know, I talk about building empathy for other people. Um, But even with building empathy, you have to start with yourself first. To understand yourself, having empathy for yourself, compassion for yourself—that is the initial practice, and then doing that for others. Um, so all of that is—that's the navigation. Um, periods of rest, talk to your ancestors and whatever, you know, spiritual realm you serve. All those good things, and download the two songs I said. Trust me, you just you need them on your phone. Don't just leave it on your computer. You need it on your phone because there will be a time in your day that you'd like, you know what? Let me go ahead and listen to this. Thank
0: you for that. Um, I'm looking at Jasmine and I know sometimes Jersey Club is what... <laughs> I guess I can look at both of you. Jersey Club is what... Uh what could be the centering piece, but I've been writing down all the recommendations and we're going to try to put as many as possible, um, in the show notes, but thank you for that. And I was, I was just, again, taking my personal notes on, on your recommendations for, um, for resting and, and how to show yourself, how to practice self-compassion as well, um, to, to be able to show up, show up better and fair and use discernment in, in those spaces.
1: We had um, Nina and Amelia on the show from City of Chicago, and we asked her a similar question around what it's like to be a Black woman in the planning space. And I want to get your thoughts on this concept of working in a system that you know was not designed for you. And that, for me, I know Nemo and I both came into planning because we had very personal stories and family history around the way that planning decisions and policy decisions impacted our neighborhoods and our communities and we wanted to be an advocate for change within planning when you get into it though you realize that these systems exist and you're trying to navigate how you can create change in a system that doesn't really want to change but says they want to change and so I guess I want to get your thoughts as being someone very senior in this space on just that dichotomy that existence and your kind of thoughts on it
2: in writing the book, chapter four was my fr- like my favorite chapter to write. I knocked that out in a heartbeat. Chapter one was also a good chapter. Uh, a lot of tears through chapter one, as I just reflected. Two and three were hard just because I was like, oh, what goes in two? What goes in three? What goes in two? What goes in three? Uh, five was a piece of cake because it was just you know pouring it out. Um, well, at six, 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 uh, six, let me say one more, six, five, four sixes. You know it was it was really uh I was lost. I'm like, how do i how do I end this book, right? So I get everybody through this journey, How do I end it, right? And if you know, I'm a Game of Thrones person, and you know a bad a bad season series finale, you know destroys the whole series. And so uh, I was trying to think like, how do I end it? And I really wrote that chapter as it's it's really my love note, if you will, to the advocacy community. Um, And to, um, you know, Black women, uh, Black people, women in this space of, we have to play the long game. Um, It is, uh, it's about strategy. It's about having multiple tactics. Um, I think sometimes, you know, we can focus on the quick wins, but it's what are you trying to get to? And sometimes that means you have to change things at the foundation before you do the frilly stuff. Um, so I think sometimes it's easy to focus on, oh, I did this big plan or I did this big thing, but it's like, what have you changed at the foundational level that even after it, it, it the change is there and, and it's a legacy that outlives you. And, um, it's hard because there can be an impatience sometime of, you know, we want to, we want to see the change that we want. And I'll give a great example and I won't get too into politics here, um, but you know, one really great example is, as you look about um, everything that's happened, this national discourse around schools, right? Regardless of what side you fit on of book ban or not book ban, hopefully your listeners are, you know, anti-book bans and they want to be educated and read all the things. But you know, when you think about it, it can feel like, oh, this just came out of nowhere. No, this is a very focused and funded movement to remove books from public school systems and to control education. Um, And I was watching a documentary uh, recently and you're like, oh no, they've been plotting this since the sixties, right? And so this is the long game. And when you think about politics, right? It is the long game of, we can sometimes get focused on the presidential elections. Maybe we get excited about a Senate election but all politics are local. You know, are you really following who you're, who's on your school board who your council member is you know if you have in some cities they have like an alderman or a commissioner at the local local level are you are you voting in that election you know are you uh, volunteering to be on your bicycle advisory council your zoning commission your transportation commission all of those things that is how you build and so the problem is we don't focus on putting the right people in there to build the pipeline of leadership And then we sit around saying, oh, well, who's gonna be the next mayor? I don't know. Um, And so that's where it really is the long game of, we have to, to really have the change. You have to almost infiltrate at all levels. You know, you have to elect better people at every level. You know, you think about the boards of, you know, public transit agencies, all of that. You have to have better people in those positions. You have to have better people at the lead of the agencies you have to have better mayors, like all of those things. And that change takes time and it's hard for people because again, we get impatient, we want it right now, but we really have to focus on the long game and not, not get caught in these little itty bitty battles that you've expended all your energy. And so, yeah, you won this one little project but you've expended all your energy and sometimes your political capital that now you can't even get the big stuff that your community needs. I probably went off topic but no, that was on my That heart was mind. perfect
1: and I appreciate you sharing that because I think you also bringing it back to the politics and the policy of everything is very critical because That point around electing people at all the various levels, those are all decisions that are going to have an impact on your community. This book is inclusive transportation, but there's all these different elements, schooling, housing, environment decisions, police decisions, all of those different things are very critical to how you live and are comfortable in a space. And so I think that's very important because you highlight how there are strategies that we can take to impact the system and to create change in that system rather than waiting for the president to do all these things. We can see today how difficult it is for the administration to have an idea and a goal and a policy, but then its implementation across all these different groups is completely different. If COVID-19, the way we handled that was not a perfect example of the way that politics and things are local, then I don't know what else is.
2: Absolutely, and it really is all politics. You know, it, it really is local. Not to say the national stuff can't impact you, but it is the local stuff that is impacting your day to day life. You know, it is your council people. Um, you know, depending on what type of a structure you're in, your councilor, your county commissioners, maybe that are making decisions on what time the library is open, where the libraries are located, the investment in that. You know, they're the ones making the decision in zoning and 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 all of that. And those are the things that impact housing affordability right um if it's all single family zone and you can't build any type of density you guess what it's a supply and demand simple as that you know if you have uh policies in place that are harmful um you know i have seen i know that um and i'm, I'm gonna go off topic from transportation for a second this is on my heart and mind right now um uh y'all are supposed to say take your time pastor but it's okay So, you know, it's one of the things that I know I saw, you know, with gentrification, and this goes back to the first question about data, it can be very easy and misleading to start off with, oh, this community gentrified, because in 2000, the community was X percent Black, Latino, poor, whatever. And now it's Y, you know, X minus whatever percent Black, Latino, poor. And so we'll go like, oh, this community, this, this neighborhood gentrified. And so then now as a result, all these amenities came and yes, and, but no, and, um, it's not, I, I think we oversimplify and and I wrote about this in greater greater Washington gentrification drives me crazy because you're missing the point. Yes. On the data surface, the income in this neighborhood rose and maybe the race and the ethnicity of this neighborhood changed, but that in and of itself is not gentrification. Gentrification is really systemic that sometimes it's just the market responding. And so I think it's important to say because there are policies that are harmful that can lead to gentrification. And so one of those, and this is a real problem in the black community with housing, I'm not gonna say it's just the black community, but I'm talking about the black community right now. Um, but you know, one of the real problems around housing is we don't write wills and we don't have living testaments and we don't have living trust. And so what happens is grandma dies and every family in the history of family Starts beefing, right, and that goes across, you know, uh, ethnicity, income. The families start beefing, and so what happens is grandma's house is sitting empty. So now, because of a policy, it's getting hit with a vacant property tax. So what would have been um, a small tax is now doubled and tripled because it's a vacant property right? Because the family can't seem to get it together. And then they go to probate court and it could take 18 months to get to probate court. And so time is happening. Time is ticking. No one's paying the tax bill because no one wants to. And grandma's house is sitting empty. Next you know, guess what happens? House is sold in a tax sale. And I've seen it so many times. And so I say that to say that there are systems in place that are leading to that. You know, the fact that you have a vacant property tax, and I understand the purpose is, you know, people were not taking care of their properties. Um, but from a policy perspective, you can miss the point. And the policy really is, well, how do we make an investment in seniors to make sure that they have a proper will, a proper um, living trust, a proper thing in order to protect their property? The other piece of it is some people get grandma's house. I guess what they do, they sell it. So you've gotten the value out of grandma's house. So while the community has changed and the market has changed, that family did reap the financial benefits of selling grandma's house, you know? And so is that still gentrification or is it you've received your investment? So I say all that to say it's, uh, I don't remember what the question was, but anyway, that's what I had to say. That was just my heart and mind of like, I think sometimes in big systems, it's, And really I'm on a a panel right now for Transmission Research Board about multi-solving safety systems. And that's the thing about it is we have to look at cities as a system and look at everything as a system and really do the analysis. And that's where chapter four becomes important of who is pushing for this? What is their motivation? What are they benefiting from this? And who is always being harmed by this? And even in chapter uh, three, um, I provide you know some different policy analysis. And because you really have to understand the system and where the system is not working and the system is causing harm beyond just the other market forces or the surface level, what seems to be the problem. And so I guess so it goes back to data of
1: getting deeper into the data. No, I'm glad you closed <laughs> the loop with the data because that was exactly my thought is what question are we asking when we're looking at the data? If we're trying to just for gentrification decide, something with well, those that binary might not be the answer that might not be the data that we need to look at in order to get to the question so I appreciate you and that was not a tangent very relevant very important Nemo and I at the end of our episodes like to do takeaways with our guests in which we ask our guests and then Nemo and I will sh- also share around things that they feel like they took away from today's episode, and so I'll give you time to kind of prepare and think, but I will jump to Nemo first to share her takeaways from today's episode.
0: Yeah, I think my takeaways are still in line with just how I felt reading the beginning of the book, and then like like what I was experiencing reading the book throughout, and how the ways I was able to apply it to um, my day-to-day work, and I feel like it goes back to language matters, Um, And I think just from now over the last, it's probably been 10 years that I've been doing various diversity, equity, inclusion trainings um, in academic settings and in professional settings. Um, And uh, at no point ever do I feel like, well, I'm an expert in equity and I can tell other people what to do because I'm all constantly being educated. And in a way, that's also what I love about the space is that it evolves and part of being intentional in the space is knowing that you can also learn, you're always learning and unlearning. How we talk about things matters. um, And then how we also, what the action that comes after whatever we're talking about also matters. Um, And it matters on all levels. And I think it's just so it's just such a treat to have you on the episode today and for the podcast because we're constantly sharing we we what we, well, we really hope people get away from the podcast every day is that you don't need to be a planner. You don't need to be an engineer. You don't need to be in the field. Um, but every, you know any step, whether you hear something in today's episode or any of our episodes and um that spurs into a conversation that someone with someone you have or you know with some with someone, whether it's spurs into a conversation in your personal life um, that just warms my heart. And so I hope that people um, are able to read the book and get the same thing out of it or hear this episode and also be inspired to both speak and act, um, in in an intentional way in their daily life.
1: My biggest takeaway in reading the book was around the work that still needs to be done. And I think I had a, a question as I went through it is even in, um, Tamika's introduction there's a lot of emphasis on 2020 in that summer and how because we were home and we had these crimes against humanity I will call them happening while we were all at home and that's all we could focus on it kind of created a lot of discourse in planning and public health and engineering and every single field wanted to have their conversations around equity and inclusion and I was left with kind of the thought around When was the last time that there was like a catalyst or a shift that caused these kind of discussions and what did we gain or lose from them? And so it's just a kind of rhetoric question that I've been thinking about. I need to take some time and and do more research on, but that was something that I wanted to understand because as much momentum as we're putting in now, even as it's been declining three years post COVID or three years post the beginning of COVID or however you want to think about it. I'm curious as to when we had this momentum before, did we take full advantage of it? And did we actually implement the change that we wanted to see? And if we did or we didn't, how can we allow this opportunity to be a better version of that? And so, Veronica, we'll ask you to give your takeaway either from this episode, our conversation, something that you've learned as you now have finished the book. It's been out on the streets for some time and any feedback you got or whatever you want to share.
2: Um, so I will say this, uh, you two are absolutely dope individuals. And I know the question um, that you all asked me about being a black woman in this space. um, I think that you all are prime examples of my response to that question of are times that we just have to make our own space. um, And that's what you've done with this podcast of you could have conformed and contorted um, to get in someone else's space or do things like everyone else that everyone's comfortable, Um, but you made a conscious decision to be yourselves and talk about things that interest you um, as black women, as black, as women and all of those things. And so um, that's my biggest takeaway. It is you all are the embodiment of what we sometimes need to do in, in creating our own space Telling our own stories um, and being our authentic selves um, in our in our own unique ways,
1: I think Nemo and I both want to say thank you at the same, at the
0: same time. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. And um, to Jasmine's point, one of my good friends who's in the media and um, podcast space, and when I was telling her, I was like, you know, my friend just asked me to start this podcast. I don't know what, I don't know if I want to do it. It's like, I'm scared. Like, is this going to be like, what is this going to be like? Um, And she did tell me that I always remember it's more important to have us, even if you have a small number of solid people who are committed um to to your content uh will take will carry you far. And so um as we do this off season episode, um in this, you know, somewhat of a different style um to our episode, just another thank you to our listeners too, because I do feel like there are so many people that I've never met in person, but I feel like I know like they're really, you know, ten toes down, four degrees close, they're 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 with us. So yeah, well, with that, um, thank you again so much, Veronica, for um, for joining us today um, to talk about your recent book. Um, again, we hope that yes, Jasmine is holding it up. I got mine with my my stickies in here. <laughs> um, so we hope that um, this um, has sparked a lot in our in our listeners, um, and we're excited to really just see how the the book. I, I'm excited to see it used in a in a community engagement 400 cl- or would that be I don't remember how grad school classes are numbered, 400 level, whatever, undergrad or grad school. Um, look forward to that as well. Um, and you can um, catch us starting at the, uh, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. Um, we'll be back um, every other Tuesday. Um, and you can follow us on Instagram or X, um, formerly known as Twitter, at the number four degrees pod.
1: And make sure y'all get this book, even for people in your life that are not planners, not engineers, not in the industry, your cousin. She will love the book. Peace out, y'all.